After five seasons um, coaching the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, Marv Levy helped the Buffalo Bills become one of the most dominant American football conference teams during the 1990s. Some of you remember that decade. His greatest success con- uh, occurred between 1990 and 1993 when he led Buffalo to a record four consecutive Super Bowl appearances. You notice we didn't say any wins there. They were appearances. He lost all four of those games um, and through a variety of different circumstances. Uh, you couldn't really blame him, but that's the game of football. Anyway, he retired in 1997, and years later he was interviewed not about the losses that he experienced during the Super Bowl, but just the game of football. The question was, how did you handle the uncertainty of walking onto the field and not knowing the outcome? How did you manage the anxiety? And Levy responded with, if you're looking for certainty, you've chosen the wrong game, right? Um, That's one of the differences of going to the Super Bowl and going to the theater. Man, if you go to the theater, you already know that Hamlet's going to die, right? I mean, it kind of takes the fun out of it. But you already know he's going he's to die before you go home that night. But when you go to a football game, there's two teams going onto the field, and nobody knows what the final score is going to be. And that's where the thrill comes into the game, because you don't know until the final buzzer. If you went to a football game and you knew the final score, it would, you know, you, where's the adrenaline? There, there is none. You know, you just kind of flatline on your heartbeats and you just kind of twiddle your thumbs. That's kind of how it goes. But not knowing the end of the score, um, it, it's not really anxiety. It's, it's a matter of trusting the game. Somebody is going to win, and somebody's going to lose. And uncertainty is part of the essential element in the game of football. And you know that. Just like life, we don't know tomorrow. We know how yesterday ended, right? We have, we have that certainty. We knew how that goes. But we don't have certainty in how it's going to end tomorrow or even today. And so that can, for some people, lead to anxiety. But when we look at the life of Daniel, we realize there was a lot of uncertainty in his life. And he didn't deal with anxiety. He didn't deal with panic. He simply trusted his God. And that's where you and I land this morning. We live in an uncertain world, don't we? But here's the thing. We can put our trust in God because he can be trusted. And just a footnote, maybe we don't know what tomorrow holds or even the rest of the today, today holds, but here's the deal. We know how the end of the world ends, the final chapter. And if you want a clue, you can go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, and read the last couple chapters, man, and you can zero down that God is in control. And that he is all powerful. And we sang about it this morning. That he is holy. He is holy, man. And the angels, millions of angels bow down and worship him. And so 
Not knowing the future, yes, that can lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a fear of the unknown. But God has helped us with giving us his word, and we know how the world's going to end. And God is in control. In Daniel's story, in chapter 2, we realize that God is still in control. Even though Daniel and his friends have been moved into a, a most, the most pagan country in the world at that time, which was Babylon, stolen from their home country of Israel and Jerusalem, and taken to a, a, a new world order, so to speak. And yet, you want to know something? God was still in control. Friend, you might feel a little off balance today. I don't know how your week went. I don't know how this month's going for you, this year. But I can tell you this thing, that God is still in control. And if you've been pushing God away, I want to encourage you to settle in and say yes to him. Because here's the deal. He made you. He created you. And he has a purpose for your life. You will find your purpose in him and him alone. So don't waste your time, man. I'm telling you, don't waste your time dilly-dallying with all these other things that are appealing and distracting and trying to get your attention. And so today, we're going to trust the author of life. As we go to Daniel chapter 2, looking at verse 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to verses 10 and 11. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah, man. We get to read the Bible, and here we go. One night, during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the head of Babylon, the most powerful country in the world, had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. And so he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me. And I must know what it means. And so there's pushback back and forth. These guys are pushing back at the king. Come on, you got to tell us the dream. He says, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. Back and forth. And finally, in verse 10, the astrologers replied. They were kind of the spokesmen of these four different groups that are identified. No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever had such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What are these guys doing? They pulled out their violins, man, and started playing. They were feeling sorry for themselves. They're saying, this isn't fair. Nobody's ever done this to astrologers before, to magicians. They've always told us what the dream is, and we'll tell you what it means. This isn't fair. Verse 11, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among the people. Friend, if you're living for a god with a small g, your god does not live among you. In fact, I can guarantee you, your god is not alive. Stone, wood, the planets, people worship all different kinds of things. Your God's dead, but the one true God, he's living here right among you. And he's trying to get your attention because of his great love. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. 
We thank you for the privilege we have to read it. Not only read it, Lord, but to apply it to our lives. What a, what a, what a pity, really, how people can read the Bible and never apply it to their lives. They just go through the motions. But how cool it is, God, when we can read it and say yes to you and allow your spirit to change us more into the very image of Jesus Christ. That is exciting. And so we say yes to you this morning. For those watching online and those in this auditorium, Lord, we do pray that you would have the liberty to move in amongst each person, knowing where they're at, what they're going through, because you care. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week, we you can see on your notes, the, the first two are, uh, are, are filled in, and, and just real quick, I can't sleep. We, we hit that pretty hard. Uh, last week, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, man, I've had disturbing dreams and I can't sleep. He had a, he had a problem. They were disturbing. And he, he kind of figured that the gods, small g, were trying to say something to him. Since he was the most powerful man and they hey, were living in the most powerful kingdom, that these gods were trying to get his attention to say something. And so that's why he called in these four groups into his office and said, hey, tell me what I dreamed and what it means. The word disturbing dreams in the text means to strike as with a hammer on an anvil. In other words, something was hammering Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts. He, he just couldn't rest. When he, he couldn't sleep at night and then it was, was howling him during the day. Uh, this hammering was going on in his head. And that's why he, he put such a demand on these guys to say, man, you guys got to tell me what I'm dreaming and what it means. And they kept saying, man, it's not fair, King. You know, it's not fair. And so who was the one that gave King Nebuchadnezzar this dream? Was it the God, small g? No, it was the one true God. Isn't that cool? In a pagan king... God is trying to get the king's attention, and he gives him a dream. God gives this king a dream for a purpose. Why? Remember, Daniel was exiled all the way to Babylon from Jerusalem, taken out of his family, his, the, the place he grew up, everything that was familiar to him as a 15-year-old teenager. God took Daniel into Babylon because God's going to use Daniel to interpret this dream. Isn't that cool? I mean, how many of us would think, man, life throws all kinds of curveballs to us. And, and, and to be taken away from our homeland, taken away from our relatives and friends, into an environment that is so anti-God. We would think God is so far away. God's on vacation. God hates me. We go through a litany of thoughts in the back of our head. This isn't right. It's not fair. And Daniel, as a 15-year-old, never went down that road. He trusted God, no matter what happened. And in the end of it, here God uses this 15-year-old, who was an 18-year-old at the time, to interpret this dream. God is behind it. Friend, God is working in your life. And instead of getting caught up in the frazzle, you know, why is this and why is that? 
Just say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I am your son. I'm your daughter. And you're working in and through me. Right? Absolutely. So, God's still using dreams to communicate today. Last week we talked about Muslims meeting Jesus in dreams in levels never seen in over 1,400 years. God is using, God is working in the world today. So don't diminish your, your image of who God is. I mean, I thought this morning, even the songs, man, holy, God is holy. There's a lot of activity going on in heaven right now. And God is active. And the Holy Spirit is working. So, number two, I need help. The king says, man, I, I can't sleep, so I need help. That's kind of an, uh, the next step. If I can't sleep, I need help, right? That's the order the king went into. And he called in his magicians, verse 2, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he demanded that he tell them what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Now, when you read through this text, he keeps repeating this, this statement, I am serious. <laughs> In fact, I'm so serious, if you don't tell me my dream and what it means, I'm going to blow you up. And I'm going to blow up your house with you. Is that serious? That's serious, man. That's very serious. And so the king was, was trying to communicate, hey, this is not some game I'm playing, guys. This dream is really haunting me, and I need to know what it means. And I'm not going to relent here. And these guys are trying to push back and saying, no, 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 we, we, you know, we, we just don't, we can't help you here, king. So anyway, we see in verse 9, the king says, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. That's kind of an ominous word, isn't it? You're doomed. Did you ever think to yourself, I'm doomed, you know, I'm doomed, I'm doomed. Well, the men say, you know what, we can't do it, king. We're signing off on this. I know you're, I know you're threatening us. We're telling you it's not fair. And they said in verse 10, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. No king, however great or powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. And they finally said to the king, we, we can't do it. It's, it's humanly impossible. And then they go on, verse 11, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among the people. What a pity, isn't it? To have gods that don't live among the people? The question is, where are the gods? Does that bother you? The gods don't live among the people? doesn't bother me because I know the one true God does. That's all I have to know. It's subtle. It's done. It's finished. Which leads us to number three. Um, doom is creeping closer. There's that word again. Doom. Verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. Is that doom? If you were part of the wise men, wouldn't you say that's doom? That's doom and gloom. Look at, look, look at this cloud here, man. Whew. That's doomy. That's doomy and gloomy. They're hanging out together. 
And that's kind of where the wise men landed, these four groups that uh, had been brought into the king's palace. And they said, it's impossible. And, uh, you know, the, the, the astrologers were hoping that Nebuchadnezzar would change his mind. He would soften his approach. The tension was rising in the palace. And so uh, that leads us to number four, death knocks on Daniel's door. Verse 13, and because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them. So what happens here, Nebuchadnezzar takes these four groups of wise men and he threatens them. And when they said, we're signing off, king, the king includes everybody in the country who are his wise men. He says, we're going to execute every single one of them. This is the first time that Daniel shows up in chapter 2. He's not in the palace when the astrologers and the king are having this dialogue, pushback, back and forth. Daniel is working. His three buddies are working. They're staying busy. They have no idea what's going on in the palace. Is that fair? Somebody rings your doorbell and says, you're a dead man. I have a death sentence here. It's hopeless for you. Death comes knocking on Daniel's door. And so Ariok gets the drones out and he starts flying them over Babylon to find out exactly where Daniel is. Is he at home? Is he at work? Is he on the road? And so the drones track him, and we see the commander came to Daniel and his friends, and he said, we're going to kill you. It's over. Missionaries uh, Gladstone Porteous and his wife were taken prisoners by the Chinese bandits, communist bandits, back in 1931. And they were led to a top of a hill where they were going to be executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the executioner took out his machete. He had him kneel down on top of that hill. And um, it seemed like certain death was imminent for this couple that had served God faithfully in China over the years. Instead of begging for mercy, the Porteous couple began to sing. Listen to the words of this famous hymn. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Instead of crying out for their lives, instead of pleading for mercy, this couple was ready to die. For their faith. And they thought this hymn would be the last song they would sing on earth. But to their surprise, the order to execute them wasn't given. The bandits just packed up their gear, put the machete away, and left this couple on top of the hill. The Porteous couple went on to explain the peace of God they experienced when death came knocking on their door. How would you respond, friend? Somebody rang your doorbell and said, there's a death sentence for you. 
Well, we see how Daniel responds. And number subpoint one, wisdom for a crisis. And this is good wisdom for each one of us this morning. We need wisdom to live our lives effectively in 2023. Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Ariach, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? Remember, Daniel wasn't in the palace. He has no idea what's going on. All he knows is he's supposed to be killed with his friends. So Ariach told him all that had happened, gave him a quick summary. He had his DVD player with him, and he, and he showed him a summary of the, of the conversation going on, you know, with Nebuchadnezzar and the astrologers and their team. And Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Do you, do you get the sense that Daniel is not in panic mode? Do you, do you get that sense? He, he's not freaking out. He's, he's not running to the basement, you know, the secret passageway. There's a tunnel for the great escape. No, no, he, he stands there, and he's communicating with the man that's supposed to execute him. So what's this all about? Can you give me some background information? And Ariach, the dude that's in command here, lets Daniel go to the king. How did that happen? God is working, friends. He's working. And, and Ariok lets Daniel go see the king. And by faith, Daniel, after he hears what's going on, he knows God. He has an intimate relationship with God. And he's trusting him for the answer. Because what do you think Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar? We see in verse 8, the king replied, talking to the dudes that failed him, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. But here we see in verse 16, Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Isn't that cool? That's a man under control with the peace of God. And so Daniel rings the doorbell at the palace and asks to see the king, and he comes in, and the king gives him his undivided attention. And Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, I just need a little time to give you the answer of what your dream was and what the dream means. I'm telling you, king, I'm going to give you the answer. Daniel had that kind of confidence in God. Do you have that confidence in God? Do I have that confidence? Do I know God that well that I can trust him? Well, we know Daniel believed it was possible to know the future if God tells you. If God tells you. And God did in verse 19. We'll look at that later. And the king said to Daniel, after Daniel came in with that, really a calmness and a boldness of his trust in God, the king says, sure, Daniel, whatever you need. I'll give you to morning. <laughs> and he let him go. And you can imagine the astrologers and teams listening to this conversations thinking, we've got a little more time. 
They were happy that Daniel stepped out in faith. Which leads to sub-point number two, pray in a crisis. Man, this is so practical for you and me today, to pray in a crisis. Verse 17, then Daniel went home and he told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. And he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Do you see what Daniel does? He, he knows exactly. He doesn't have to tune into Google and say, what do you do when your life is threatened? To get some wisdom there. No, no. He already knows what he needs to do. He needs to go home and get his three buddies together and say, guys, it's time to get together and pray for God to give us some wisdom here. Daniel had a habit of praying ahead of time. And here's the thing. So many people have foxhole prayers. When you're under attack, when you're in combat, so to speak, and your world seems to be falling apart, that's when you go to God to pray, right? And you call those foxhole prayers. Lord, if you save me here, I'll live for you the rest of my life. That's, a, that's an urgent prayer. But Daniel, on the other side of that, was he had a rhythm of prayer. It was something he did every day in the good times, in the bad times, in the normal times, in the times of crises. He prayed daily, consistently. And that's why Daniel had the confidence of going to King Nebuchadnezzar and saying, King, I'm going to give you this answer. Just give me a little time. Why? Because he knew God that well. There is something about meeting with God consistently, daily, reading his word, applying it to your life. It builds your inner core. So when the crises come in life, Daniel was calm, wasn't he? He didn't freak out. He trusted God. And that's where you and I need to follow his example. Dr. Seuss, some of you grew up with his books. Not a theologian, by the way. But he wrote the book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Listen to what he says in the book. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know. And you are the one who'll decide where to go. So when looking at that quote, I agree with everything in there except you're on your own. If we could delete that part of the quote, I would say, as a follower of Jesus Christ, he has given us everything we need to live a holy life with his great and precious promises. So because Christ is living in and through me, that's, that's a true statement. I'm trusting God to direct me. I'm deciding today I'm going to live for Jesus. I know where I'm going because the Lord is living through me. But you're on your own. Woo! That's not happening, friend. You're not on your own. You may think you're on your own, but God is with you. And we know that Daniel wasn't on his own. God was going with him. And Daniel goes to God because that's the best place to go. Isn't it? Yes, it is. 
And so Daniel gets his buddies together and he recruits them. And he says, okay, dudes, it's time to pray. This is not the first time we've come together and prayed together, guys. We've had this habit and we need to do it right now. Why? Why should they do it now? Because that's what they always did. It's a good habit. So biblical scholar Ray Vanderland notes that the first century Jews had a blessing that expresses the commitment of a disciple to follow after a rabbi. And this is the blessing. May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. And what does that mean? The rabbi cleans his vacuum cleaner while it's running and you're covered with dust? No, 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 no. This is what it means. May you follow your rabbi so closely that the dust his feet kicks up is what cakes your clothing and lines your face. Isn't that cool? You follow Jesus so closely that the dust from the, from the road gets kicked up on you. You're that close to Jesus that it covers your clothes and it covers your face. So many followers of Christ are falling so far behind Jesus, they never get a taste of that dust. And man, are they missing out. It's kind of like the baby ducks. This is an incredible thing that God does. He puts the image of its mother on the duck's brain. Now you would think, doesn't God have more serious things to do than to put the image of the duck's mother on the little ducks so they don't follow the wrong mother? No. God is so amazing that It's like a stamp on a duckling's brain, the image of its mother. So, boom, they know which mom to go to in a crowded neighborhood. See? That's what needs to happen to you and to me as we follow Jesus Christ, that the stamp of Jesus' image is so strong on our brain. We don't want to drift away. We don't want to wander away from him. We want to get as close as we can so hit the dust from his sandals hits us right in the face. That's where Daniel was. So why this morning what's keeping you covered from the dust from Jesus' sandals in your life? What's preventing you from experiencing the dusty clothes and the dust in your face? Are you following Jesus that close? Or are you following from a distance? I would like to encourage you. Today is a great day to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you as close as I can because I want to get dusty with you. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to read your word, to see how Daniel experienced a crisis in his life in a foreign country. And yet there was a peace, just like the Porteous couple when their lives were threatened with a machete. They put their trust in you. And Lord, this morning, 
we can agree and we can say, yes, Lord, there are crises in our lives that we're facing. And we don't want to run away from them. We don't want to pack it up and raise the white flag and say, I can't handle this. Instead, Lord, because we've had a relationship with you, we can trust you through it all. And I pray for those this morning, Lord, that have never put their faith in you. They've they've walked so far away from you, dust in their face and dust on their clothes. Man, that's all foreign to them. They, They don't understand it. But Lord, you're making yourself known today because Daniel had that relationship with you. And that's a model for us. That's how we can live our lives when we put our trust in you. And so this morning, I just pray for each person watching online and in this auditorium. They would simply say, Jesus, you went to the cross to pay for my sin dead in full. I'm putting my trust in you. Forgive me of my sins this morning. Thank you for for that forgiveness. Thank you for taking my place and paying for my sin debt. And Jesus, today I'm going to follow you close so the dust hits my face through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.